If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We will be looking at Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word to our hearts and minds. So Father, we together as sovereign grace ask for your utterly undeserved blessing to cause this word, to cause this prayer to be prayed again and again and again, to penetrate our minds in our hearts, our souls, our being. That we would pray it as those who truly are aliens in this present world, looking for the life to come. That we would see the manifestation of your power in causing us to be more loving toward each other, and to love you more than all. Do it, Lord, to the glory of your name. Amen. So in your daily walk, when you reel with yourself, and you feel your lack, when you're in touch with your spiritual immaturity, when your lack of desire for fellowship with God, for reading and actually understanding and grasping His Word, that, that, that lack, that dullness is consuming your life. When, when your lack of love for fellow believers is becoming the pattern of your life. When depression sets in, here's the sermon, pray, pray for yourself, and pray for others, because prayer works, is that actually a more accurate way to say it is, because God who called you to his son has ordained to work in all those who are His through petitionary prayer. The Apostle Paul is a mouthpiece of God. He is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Every Christian should memorize this short prayer. We should plagiarize this prayer and praying it over and over for our own souls and for each other. So what I want us to notice first before we get to the prayer is the connection between verse 8 and 9. The word and. For God is my witness, Philippian church, how I, Paul, yearn for you all with the affection, the, the heart, the guts of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer. Don't miss it. Paul interprets his own care and love and concern for the well-being and the growth of the Philippian church in Jesus to be Jesus' very personal care for them manifesting in his heart for them, which leads him to pray this prayer. 
Paul's thrilled to pray this prayer because he knows the results of the prayer are guaranteed. Uh, this is not part of the sermon, and I hope it doesn't turn it into an hour and a half, but at youth group the other night, we're reading through John. And Jesus makes an astounding statement to those who are his. Abide in me. And let my word, the truth, the gospel, abide in you. Ask whatever you want. It'll be done. Why? Because if, if the condition's met, you're not asking for that glorious car. What you're asking for is fruit. And that's the context. Go read it. It's the fruit. And he says, do this so that fruit come and through that fruit, my Father is glorified. And this prayer just is exactly that. Paul knows it's going to happen because he just said in verse 6, what God began in you when you started to love the gospel, to love Christ, to seek for glory and honor and immortality laid up for you. He will absolutely complete that good work in you of loving God and others. God is answering this prayer that your love would continue to grow more and more. Because he started it, and he will bring it to completion. So, let's go now and just slowly look at these three verses of this prayer. First, notice that Paul does not give a specific object of the word love. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. But he doesn't say love for what? There's no object. He doesn't say specifically your love for God or your love for one another. And I think it's purposeful in order that he just leaves it open because he doesn't want us to restrict it to just our love for God or just our love for others because both are true and it comes out in the way he prays this prayer. And then he says, I want your love, this love for God and for others to abound to grow more and more, which implies Paul thinks real love is happening. They really love God, and, and there's real fruit of loving each other, but boy, is there always room to grow. He knows his own heart. He knows the Christian battle here in our mortality and in our flesh. He knows selfishness is ever-present, and he actually knows a particular squabbles going on in the church of Philippi, which he'll later mention. In other words, they and every Christian should always expect to grow in our loving God. To grow in our loving one another from one level, one degree of glory to another. That your love would grow more and more. But that's not all that Paul prays here. Look at it. He says something about that love. Something specific about your love for God and your love for others. First, that your love would abound more and more with something, along with something, knowledge. 
The word Paul uses here for knowledge, it has an intensifier attached to the beginning of it. It makes it a compound word when that preposition is attached to it. He doesn't use just the basic word for knowledge in Greek, gnosis. He uses here epinosis. That's why I think the New American Standard Bible more accurately translates it real knowledge. Not just knowing, not just knowledge, but there's real knowledge. And the 15 times Paul uses this word epinosis in the New Testament, it always refers to, to knowledge of ultimate realities. Connected with, most always, the knowledge of God. May your love for God, which overflows in love for people, grow with real knowledge. Okay, what does that mean? I think it means that knowledge, as we are walking, and we absorb the truth and the gospel in knowledge. That is empowering more love for God and for others. And, and I think it means it's if we're walking, not just in the head, but by the Spirit in practicing love, that is opening up our heart to actually get it. Real knowledge. Instead of just head knowledge. Paul's view of knowledge was clearly influenced by the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew scriptures, to know God meant not merely, I know some things about God. It meant in the Hebrew scripture to have a close relationship with God because He has revealed Himself to you. You know Proverbs, Old Testament, here it is. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Fear, fear is not a head thing. Fear is a heart issue. That's where we fear, down here. And to know that God is God and to have a holy fear of God is the beginning of really knowing. Beginning of knowledge. Knowing God in the Old Testament is connected to His commands, to knowing His will. So in the Old Testament and in the Apostle Paul, knowledge is not just head stuff, but it develops in one's life as they listen to Him, as they listen to His written Word and let it Abide in them, as Jesus says. And thus they're obedient to it. So in other words, this knowledge comes with loving. Loving God and loving others. He's not referring when he says to knowledge. Or let your love grow with knowledge. Okay, I'm going to learn trigonometry. Or I'm going to learn physics or medicine. That's not what he means by knowledge. He means the knowledge of God. He wants them to enjoy insight into God and His, His nature, His ways, His mercy that would guide them in their walk in life to live and to love more and more. He wants our love to grow more and more with knowledge and then secondly, with all discernment. Now, that word here, this term, it means something like with the sphere, that it grow in the sphere of insight. In other words, in your loving, that, that, that you begin to really see. You, you grasp reality better, more clearly. 
This is the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul always had on hand, it's used 27 times, and 22 of them are in the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, the book of everyday practical wisdom on how to live life. He wants our love to grow with practical wisdom in interpersonal relationships with others. Here's a way to say what this word means, that a grow in, in insight means think about, if you know the TV series, The Office. This word is the exact opposite of everything Michael Scott is about. This is having a clue. This is reading people. This is insightful on how to better love and care for the other. Love thinks of the other. No, not just, oh, I got an idea. This is burning in me. I got to get this off my chest. So I'm just going to dump it. No, the better that you love others means the more you have discernment is What's best here at this moment, this time, that you just not be an irritating, bothersome person who's selfish? No, there's hard conversations, but you look and say, God help. Is this the time? Is this the place? I pray that your love would abound. Grow more and more with real knowledge and depth of practical insight. Now, I think just turn from the other angle. I think Paul's clearly saying, "You really, you re you can be in seminary, you can read theology book after theology book, but you really can't grow in your true knowledge of God if you're filled with ongoing bitterness." selfishness and unloving behavior you will not grow in what he's talking about the true knowledge of God has a moral element to it in connection with other human beings you can memorize scripture you can memorize theological concepts and not necessarily be growing in the knowledge of God with the depth of of insight that Paul is calling for. It's a back and a forth. As James says, it's not merely being a hearer, but it's being a doer. And as you're doing what you know of the gospel, that is where growth of really getting it comes from. Christians cannot say, I'm gonna increase in my knowledge in my theology, in my memorizing the scripture, but I'm not going to be obedient to it. Or you cannot say, I will grow in loving others, but I couldn't care less about growing in knowing God's ways and loving God. This will not be biblical love. I'm loving Let's ignore the book. Oh, no. No. People should be able to make love to whomever they want. Whenever they want. So I'm protecting you from those bad people. I'm loving you. This is the world. That is darkness. It is both. And. And notice. Paul gets to the why. That's a huge thing in his prayer. Why are you praying that way, Paul? Why do you want our love to grow more and more? You want it to, why do you want it to grow in real knowledge and practical wisdom and depth of insight? Why? That's what he answers next. So that. In order that you may approve 
what is excellent. In order that as you live day by day, you will be making choices. Yes, this is better than that. It's not enough just to know something. Nor to know the good from the bad. Or the good from the best. It's not enough. Verse 10a is the goal of the knowledge. The goal of the discernment. The goal is not more knowledge. The goal is choosing from that knowledge the best. God wants our hearts. The goal is not just seeing the difference between the good and the less good, but it is seeing it in order that we would approve of the best, desire the best, love the best. Approval is a matter of the heart agreeing with the head that this is valuable. This is excellent, not that. This is better than that. That's what Paul's driving at. That's why Paul prayed for himself. His love would abound. Love for fellow Christians. Care for their soul would abound more and more with real knowledge and wisdom and insight, which, which led Paul to say, when there's a brother or a sister in the Lord who doesn't see like I see eye to eye concerning meat sacrificed to an idol, when I'm with them, Paul said, I will choose to never eat meat again. Because they're immature and it will offend their conscience. That came from knowledge. It came from a depth of insight and thus loving the other. Choosing what's excellent. And what's excellent here, Paul says, I will never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. But back at the text now. Because then Paul goes on. And he gives the reason that everything we've seen so far is crucial. He gives the reason why it's crucial for every Christian to grow in love with knowledge so that our hearts are changed and we are making decisions and acting and approving of what is excellent. Why is that so important, Paul? It's the next clause. In order that you would be ready for judgment today. That's what it really says. That is the logic in Paul's text. The ESV and the NIV both are unfortunate translations. So be pure and blameless. And so you would be pure and blameless. And they're trying to get at it, but in the original, in the Greek, it is a henna clause, which almost always, and there's no reason not to take it this way here, it means it's a purpose clause for what just came before. And that's why the New American Standard Bible translates it accurately, so that. Paul is saying, this is crucial. It's crucial that knowledge, loving others with insight is producing you approving the best, the most excellent, in order that you be pure and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. At the day is a second coming at the judgment. That's his prayer.
Let me do it again. Just feel the flow. Paul is saying, I pray for you that you would be growing, growing with true knowledge of God and wisdom as you're loving God and, and you're loving others, that that will be producing in you choices, choosing the good over the lesser in order that it lead to you standing before Christ one day, pure and blameless. That's his prayer. Blameless. Okay. That word in the context, it either means so that you will not be stumbling all over the place in this love thing. Blameless. Or it means that you won't be stumbling others. Probably it means the second one. That's why blameless is a, it's a good translation. As Paul says, do not put a stumbling block in a fellow Christian's way. You don't want to be living a life that doesn't care less if they're stumbling all over decisions that you make and words that you say. Be careful that you're not constantly putting stumbling blocks and causing them to fall on their face so that you would be not blamed for that on the day of Christ. It's essentially what he's saying, that you would be pure and blame. Pure. In other words, genuine, just unmixed. That this life and the way that you that, that, that what God's doing in you is this prayer's being answered, just you just that person is them with their personality, but genuinely loving Christ. Genuinely, imperfectly, but genuinely loving others. You'd be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that our lives, our choices, our actions will substantiate that we really did approve what was excellent in our journey down here with Christ. And it will come out then. And the implication is, for all of us who call ourselves Christians... If we remain and continue in indifference to loving God, to loving others, but we prefer a life of grumbling and bitterness and unforgiveness and selfishness and backbiting, then we may not do well on judgment day. But Paul here from the context, he's confident this won't happen to them. It won't happen to, to every born-again person. Because of verse 6, for one, he who began it, he will bring it to completion, as we saw last week. But not just that. Notice verse 11, where he affirms this again. Because now... Take everything we have seen so far in the prayer. Verse 11 now. Paul in his prayer tells us how those things are going to happen. How is it that you will stand pure and blameless on the day of Christ? Proving that you were approving of those things that are excellent. Because with that is the evidence of you growing in love for God. In love for others in all knowledge and insight. How will that be happening in the Christian life? His answer is this. By having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. In order that you be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled, it is a perfect passive participle. I don't do this often. It is crucial here. Meaning, he is with the participle showing the way that this happens. That any of us will make it pure and blameless. 
Having been filled, passive, you don't do it. It's done to you. It's done through you. Perfect. Something that began and passed. As we see in verse 6, God began it at new birth. And then it continues on throughout the walk. We don't have a perfect tense like that in English. The Greek does. Filled, having been filled with the fruit. There's the word fruit. Often Paul means that as opposed to your work. Abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. It's the fruit that flows from the righteousness. Now, what does Paul mean? I am convinced that right here in this verse, he does not mean that the fruit is the righteousness here. He means what he will say in chapter 2. My life now, because of Christ, is driven not at all to seek a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that which comes as a gift from God, the righteousness of Christ, which is the gospel. He is referring to the imputed righteousness put to his account. When he came alive in Christ, Jesus, he's my righteousness. He's referring to justification. Now that I am justified, I am saved, there's fruit that flows out of this. And that fruit is not owing to us ultimately. And Paul's clear on that. He makes it crystal clear by the next words he says. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. All owing to Him. All of it. Justification, your sanctification, your future glorification, standing pure and blameless before Him. The underlying foundation of Paul's gospel is constantly there is no valid reason for any believer to ever boast but their boast will always be in the Lord and that's where their true happiness is found but God always gets the praise and the glory because he began the work and it is he who is bringing it to completion. Even as we then for petition God, help me grow in loving you more and in loving others more in knowledge. And you look back on your life on that day, you see, He answered. And the emphasis is on he answered those prayers. And that's why Paul concludes this prayer with to the glory and the praise of God. Not to your glory in being a better lover of other Christians. To the glory and to the praise of God. Paul is very clear. He is very consistent on that point. Here in chapter 
1, remember, he, he opened up telling them how he thanks God, thank God for the fellowship that I have with you Philippians in the gospel. That's God's doing. Then in verse 6, he who began this good work in you, he will bring it to completion. And now in verse 9, he prays for their growth in love. And he makes it clear that the way that this happens is by the fruit, which flows out of the gift of righteousness, of being in Christ. And therefore, thus, all glory, all praise, and all credit goes to God. Our salvation from beginning to end is radically God-centered. All of our lives, from the beginning of coming to Christ and new birth, through sanctification and growing in love with good works, all point to God's hand of grace upon grace, from one degree of glory to another. We will look and we will praise forever the Lamb who redeemed us, saved us, chose us, called us, sanctified us, and then glorified us. And we will see the truth if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. If you love me, you will keep my commandment and my commandment is that you love each other as I have loved you. That fruit is birthed by a massive change in worldview of reality. It's called the gospel. And fruit flows out of it. And the fruit is said another way, and I want to focus the rest of our time on that. The very high point of his prayer, which he's, which he's praying for, that, that this is what is actually practically happening, beginning of verse 10 so that you may approve what is excellent. What's that? The goal of growing in love for God and for others with real knowledge and all discernment is approving. It is choosing what is best, what is excellent in general and in specific day by day. So what are some of those big things? Here's the best way to go to it. Just look at Philippians. Look what Paul tells us in this book. Because he lays out a few examples with himself as a model of what that looks like. Not only that, he tells us directly in the book of Philippians... To use me, Paul, as a model. Chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, it would be really weird if Paul said... Look, your choosing, your approving of what is excellent has nothing to do with the pattern I'm setting for you. That would be weird. And then, then he also says again in four, chapter 4, verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me and the way I live, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. That's why Paul prays that that happens. And it is my prayer that your love will abound more and more with real knowledge and all discernment. 
Paul sees himself as one who, by God's grace, approves what is best, what is most excellent in his choices. So, one more thing before we look at a few of Paul's examples. Verse 10, the beginning of it, I'm going I'm I'm to translate it really just woodenly, very literally, this is what it says. That you may approve the things that differ. Okay. Meaning, in the sense that you would approve, in the sense of seeing the difference between choice A and choice B, and that you would choose the most excellent in relationship with your God and in your relationship with others. So let's look at the first big thing how that works itself out in Paul's life. Verse 20 of chapter 1. Paul here says, True knowledge, true discernment of reality, it leads to knowing and honoring Christ. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. That's an example of approving what is excellent. Paul's preservation of his own physical life was not one of the excellent things that he approved. Rather, his preference above that was that Christ would be exalted in his body, even if it cost him his life. It's a good thing to want to preserve and save your own skin and life. If you see a car 50 miles an hour racing right out you down the street, jump out of the way. In and of itself, nothing is unloving or wrong with that. But Paul is saying it's a better thing, it's a more excellent thing to want to glorify God. For Christ to be glorified, no matter the cost. Paul chooses the best to the merely good. Often, the good is the enemy of the best. What if you were the Jesus-loving Christian as you are now, 100 years ago? as a Russian, right after the Russian Revolution and the takeover of the government by the atheistic, communist, totalitarian party that began to legally persecute Christians based upon their thoughts, based upon their values. That even if those thoughts and values were found out, you would probably be taken away, incarcerated, sent to Siberia, or killed, or both. If that were you then, and with our passage of loving God, and caring about and loving others, and approving what is excellent, honoring Christ, What would you do? What would you choose? What if that happened here in the United States of America? In portion, in portion, the seeds of that are here now. There's a tweet last week 
that would have, in the cultural context of the United States of America, would have been impossible to tweet this and not have to publicly recant to his own side. Not anymore. And so uh, this is not a tweet from some, some 33-year-old in the basement of his mother. This is a tweet from a man, a public figure, who was the head of the Democratic National Convention a few years back. Quote, Unfortunately, Christians don't have much of a reputation for anything but hate. These days, thanks to Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell. And that's very acceptable today. What does he mean, hate? He means evangelicals. He means those who believe in the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture. He means those who believe in the exclusivity of Christ as the only Savior. That's what he means. He means to those who think and believe the Bible on marriage, that God created it and it is defined as between one man and one woman. He means that if you're born biologically a male, you're a male, period whether you feel like you're a female or not. He, he, he means those kinds of people that think that having sex with another human being of the same sex is sinful. He means you, by definition, are hateful. And the more you convince people of a group that are just hate-mongering evil people, It only opens the doors for greater and greater persecution. What will you choose? Will you choose to go on loving God and to go on loving the truth? And through that, by definition, loving others. Or will you cave in? Cave in to save your life, to save your job, to save your reputation in the midst of a perverse and misled generation. Paul prays that our love for God and for others would grow. And thus we would be like him and have courage and say that Christ be honored and glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. Second example is chapter 3. Starting with verse 4, Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If that's not an example of approving what's excellent, I don't know what is. Paul's cultural heritage was a good thing up to a point, when Christ, the gospel came and he penetrated his life, he found that much of his entire cultural background was in competition for his heart with Christ. And thus he said, I took it and I threw it into the trash because of 
surpassing value, worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He approved what was excellent. And so must we if this prayer is being answered in our lives, in our loving God. Third example, we see that Paul's growing love for Christ and for God, his, his passion for exalting Jesus in life or in death. We see his example of that spilling over into loving others. Look, look how he puts the interest of the Philippians before his own immediate comforts. Chapter 1, verse 21, start there. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die, to me, for me, for me, that's gain. If I am to live in the flesh, okay, context. If I get acquitted and am not convicted and put to death here in Rome by the government, but I'm freed, what that would mean is this. Fruitful work. I got to work more. Fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose die, be with Jesus, or stick around and go through a lot more and a lot more work to do. Which one should I choose if it were left up to me? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, I think he would be okay with this, in the sense of if I only thought about myself, would be to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain here in the flesh is more necessary on your account, for your sakes. I'm convinced of this. I know that I will be acquitted and be freed and remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul approved what was best in loving fellow believers. His answer is to do whatever needs to be done so that others may experience progress and joy in the faith. Do you pray for yourself that way? That you would be more loving according to real knowledge, real value. That actually experiencing Jesus is much more valuable than all things. That it would drive you to want to be used as a slave of Christ for the benefit of fellow Christians, of others. To live, as Paul said here, for the faith and for the joy of others. You pray to just be that person who shows up, who doesn't only think in the midst of church life, what do I get out of it? I'm tired. You just show up. Because you don't just show up for other people being there for you. You show up to be there for them. And then finally, Paul demonstrates his approving of what is best. He does it again in chapter 1, verse 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy in rivalry with me, Paul. They don't like me. But others do it from goodwill. The latter, they do it out of love. They love me. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, those Christians, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking, hoping to inflict 
me in my imprisonment. Okay, here it is. Paul prays every day. Cause me to be more loving. Cause me to value what is most valuable. And he comes to this conclusion. What then? Tell you what, Philippians, it's this. Only that. In every way, whether in pretense, bad motive, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul put the gospel advancing there in Rome over his own personal reputation, which was taking some hits. He refused to choose bitterness instead of approving what is most excellent. Christ is nevertheless being preached. It's not all about my feelings. It's not all about what people are thinking of me. He's being preached. And the only power for any of us to stand like that is when we're in touch. Like Paul at that moment must have been. We'll all stand before Jesus. On that day. And if I bank all of my hope in the truth of the gospel in there, Paul thinks I can endure. I can endure things that would be impossible for me, Paul, to endure otherwise. And so, the prayer here of Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11, it's there for us to pray constantly for ourselves. And for each other. It's radically gospel-centered. It's radically God-centered. That we would grow in loving Him. In loving others from the heart. That is, so that we're approving. Approving the right course. Approving the right way. It manifests itself in our choices. And our actions. In order that... On that day, we be standing pure and blameless before Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us who believe to know you. And your only eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And it is our prayer this morning as Sovereign Grace that you would cause our love for you, treasuring you, desire to be powerfully moved and influenced by you with knowledge of the scripture and insight that causes wisdom action that we would be approving what is excellent and his hatred for Jesus in the United States of America and in the culture grows our love for you and love for unbelievers begging for you to give us insight and wisdom in loving them with the gospel that you would give us strength to stand for truth to refuse to call Caesar Lord or to make false confessions in order not to be persecuted You are worthy to die for, if need be. And as all your saints everywhere, we know what it is to fear that. We know that your grace is good enough for every stand and for every consequence that you call us to. 
your grace will be there in the time of need. Thank you for your glory in our presence.